Take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. On April the 18th of 1942, 16 planes lined the deck of the USS Hornet. The commanding officer was a man by the name of Colonel Doolittle, and the mission that they were given was to bomb the islands of Japan. For almost six months to that point, the United States, after Pearl Harbor, had suffered defeat after defeat after defeat, island after island after island captured in the Pacific, soldiers captured, uh, and uh, ships sunk by the Japanese. The Japanese seemed to be impervious to any sort of uh, enemy and uh, just continued to expand across the Pacific. But the United States wanted to do something to try and shake the confidence of uh, the Japanese people, so they came up with this wild idea to stick large airplanes on a very short deck and try and launch them off of a ship to go bomb Japan. These 80 men that were a part of this, the 16 airplanes that were part of this, were on a one-way mission. They were to fly over Japan. They weren't going to come back and land on that aircraft carrier, and they hopefully would get to China, where they might find an airfield to land or parachute out uh, and perhaps make it into Chinese hands rather than Japanese hands. It was a one-way mission. That mission eventually became known in our history books uh, as the Doolittle Raid. It did really very little damage, but shook the confidence of the Japanese people on how in the world could the United States be able to bomb their capital and other cities and be able to do this. Uh, it made them mad, but it also uh, questioned their own ability to be able to protect themselves and change their strategy in the Pacific. I say all of that because I want to talk about a single individual out of the 80 men that were part of that Doolittle raid. There was a plane that sat in the far back of that aircraft carrier and watched every single one of those other planes fly off before it took off. And in that plane, uh, there were several men, a pilot, a co-pilot, and the navigator, and the people to shoot guns, and then an individual that was the bombardier, the guy responsible for dropping the bombs, a man by the name of da Jacob DeShazer. Jacob DeShazer uh, was from Oregon and was a man that had grown up in uh, some Christian environment. It had uh, Sunday school as a part of his life, but really uh, hadn't paid attention to much of that when he was a young uh, child and, uh, in his life. He uh, flew his mission. They bombed the city of Nagato and they flew over China and they had to bail out of their plane. He landed in a cemetery, he hurt his back and happened to land in an area that he didn't want to be in because it was Japanese-controlled Chinese territory. He was captured. He was one of eight men from that mission that were captured. The Japanese, of course, were angry that their country had been bombed, so they brought these men back to their country. They executed three of those men, starved one of them, and for Jacob de Chaser, he, not feeling the best because he had been injured uh, there, was set in the 40 months of his imprisonment, 34 of it was in solitary confinement. The only people he saw was his captors. They delivered food and the like, and that was it. Uh, he saw nothing, and they treated him miserably when they did see him. But in the whole process of being a prisoner, he began to think about some of the things that he had heard as a child 
and asked for a Bible. And somehow he got his hands on a Bible. One of the guards gave him one. Perhaps another prisoner had lost this or someone had died or whatever, but they gave him a Bible. And in three weeks' time, he read through the whole of the Scripture. And he finally, uh, in reading through this, came to the point where he came to the passage that you find in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9 that says this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And with no preacher, no teacher, just the Holy Spirit's convincing with the word of God, Jacob DeShazer became a Christian. His whole attitude to the Japanese prison, or prison guards around him changed. He thought, listen, if I'm going to reflect the life of Christ to individuals like that, I need to show them kindness. And so as soon as he'd gotten saved, what he did is that he started greeting these Japanese soldiers in their own language with a good morning and thank you. He was finally released at the end of the war, and you would think that he would come back home and enjoy life here in the States, free from all the abuse and the, the terror that he faced as being a prisoner uh, of war for 40 months. But instead, he went to a Bible college, took three years of training, got married, and went back to Japan to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to individuals that needed to be saved. Jacob DeShazer was an unusual individual because for the Japanese, they couldn't figure out why an individual had been a prisoner in one of their camps and would actually be preaching to them. Why would he come back and show them kindness after all that they had showed to him? The irony of this is that a man who was responsible for the bombing of Pearl Harbor, a man by the, Mitsu, by the name of Mitsu Fuchida, read his tract and went and found him and came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Mutsi Fuchida was a man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor. You read uh, that and you hear stories like that, and you realize that, yes, there are worldwide events that go on. Events that get eventually written down in the history books. That we remember events like that. But you also have to remember that in those stories, there are individuals. It's not just a big event. There are individuals that are a part of that, and that God is working in and through different individuals in that event to accomplish purposes that are far beyond what the war effort might have been in the case of World War II or other things. We have a story like that in Genesis chapter 14. What we read this morning was a historical, worldwide human event. You go, really? That's what it was. In that day, this would have been the big news. For us right now, the big news is the Ukraine. You know, all that's going on over there. And then you have other things that are going on. But, you know, people are talking. This is something that could lead to World War III. And it, who knows? It may. But the facts be told, in those events, there are individual things going on. And what you have is this historical event, major event in world history. And it's a major thing, but that's not the reason for the story. 
The story is going to be about an individual who ends up giving glory to God in the midst of all of those events. That he's lifting up God in the midst of all the things that are going on. He is proclaiming God and his ability to take care of him in the midst of all sorts of bad things that go on and horrible things that go on. He is going to display God to a world that wouldn't see him otherwise. If it hadn't been for these events taking place and Abraham being put where he was, they would never see God. And so as we go through this story, we're not going to spend much time on verses 1 through 12. I'll try and explain all those names without having to say any of those names. But you go, what takes place here? Well, it's this. You have four kings way over in the region of Babylon, uh, some a thousand miles away from the land of Israel. Somewhere in their past, they had taken, uh, come into that region and demanded tribute or tax money to be paid to them. And for 12 years, these four kings had collected from five kings in the land of Israel taxes. They had done this, long-distance taxation, but they were getting money off of these five kings. After 12 years, these five kings, many of them are the kings that we would be familiar with, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and other places around the Dead Sea area, they finally decided, listen, we're done paying taxes, we're going to revolt, and we're going to show those kings who are at a long distance that we don't have to pay our taxes. Well, what happens in year 13? Well, it took a year for those four kings in Babylon, A, to get the message, to gather their armies and to come across uh, the Fertile Crescent into the land of Israel. And what you have recorded in this is all these cities that they conquer going down the center of the land of Israel before they even come to deal with these five kings. The places that you had mentioned in there are places that were strong cities. Mighty fortresses, these type of things, not minor places. And they just go through these four kings and take them over, knock them down, destroy them in their march to go to these five kings who had rebelled. These five kings that you have uh, in this story, they, they meet in what was known as the, verse 10, the Vale of Siddim, which was full of slime pits. You go, what are slime pits? Uh, uh, the technical term, it's bitumen, but it's basically uh, what we get asphalt and petroleum from. It's petroleum products. What we sometimes forget is that the region of the Dead Sea, right up through the Jordan River, all the way up to the Sea of Galilee and beyond, is a very volcanic region. The rocks that are there are rocks that are from volcanoes and the like. And, and you say it's a region where... Well, you would find products like this, petroleum and, and these type of things, on the surface just sitting there. They didn't use it to power their cars, okay? I'm just letting you know that. Uh, they didn't have them back then. Well, what did they use it for? Uh, they used it for caulking of buildings and the, the bricks in between and, and used it to seal up things. This was a great kind of caulking material that they would use for this. Well, this battle took place in a field like this where there were all these slime pits that were there and the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah were told, go and hide. 
while the rest of their army gets wiped out. Not so much so that uh, what happens is that these four kings decide that they're going to go, and what you find in verse number 11, that these four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, you go, what's that? All of their possessions. And they went their way. And then here's the detail that is the one that the whole story pivots on. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. All of a sudden, the story which we've had, where they've had these armies raging in battle and whatever they've done, and all of a sudden you're going, what does this have to do? Because we get to chapter 13, we've got Abraham in the land, and he's living there. And, it's kind of, and then, then you have this, this historical event. It, it kind of messes up the reading of this. Why do we suddenly have this historical story with all these people's names and confusing places and all of this? It's to get us back to the point where we go, okay, well, here's Abram again. And the connect point is this, that Abram's not had anything to do with this to this point. He is a man who lives in tents. He doesn't live in cities. These kings are going through and knocking over cities and the like. Abram's not affected by any of that because he lives in tents and, and, and he's not in a place like that. But he's got a brother-in-law or a, a, his nephew who now lives in the city of Sodom. And we do have to at least give a comparison here real quick because eventually when we get to chapters 18 and 19, once again, we're going to compare Abram and Lot. We did last week because Abram, he saw God's plan through the eyes of faith. What did Lot see uh, the world through? He saw it through his own selfish eyes. Well, he sees that there's a city or a region he wants to go to, the region of Sodom and Gomorrah because it's well watered and the like, and he pitches his tent towards Sodom. He gets near it. Well, what do you have in this story? He's not near the city of Sodom anymore. He's in the city of Sodom. Okay, so he's kind of gone from being a person who is living, wandering in tents and the like. He's now looking for a permanent location, the city of Sodom. And, and probably what he's looking to do is to have influence with the city there. You go, really? Well, by Genesis 19, he's one of the rulers or judges of the city because that's why he's sitting in the gate. People come through and would need decision. He's, he's a judge in that city, a ruler in that city. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 19, he's a man looking to have impact and influence in the world. But look at what it gets him. He's hauled off by these individuals, these four kings, and hauled away. You go, okay, well, that's the end of him. But what we suddenly get introduced to is an individual who's one, who's one that knows God. And though from the world's perspective, he's a nobody. Oh, he's a guy who lives in a bunch of tents. He doesn't have a permanent location. He doesn't have a permanent city. He doesn't own anything. He's not all that important. You find in the story that Abram is a man of influence and impact. God is able to use him. Because as you see in the story, verse 13, there came one that had escaped, told Abram, the Hebrew. This is the first time this word's used in the scripture, uh, the term Hebrew. To describe the nation of Israel eventually are going to be known as Hebrews. But Abram, the Hebrew, okay, this distinguishes him from everybody else. But he dwelt in this plain. And he lived in this place where Mamre and Ashkol and Anar live. 
And they're confederated with Abram. What you find is that Abram has had enough influence to at least have impact and connection with some of the people around him, some of these tribesmen. And when this battle takes place and the people are carried off, Abram goes to these three men and these tribes and say, we need to do something about this. Now, Abram could have said, well, it's not our deal, it's not our problem, but it is his brother. It's a part of this. And so he says, we need to do something about this. And Abram doesn't just merely call upon everybody else to do something. He goes and he takes, as you read this, that verse 14, Abram heard that his brother was taken captive. He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Now, this is a detail we hadn't had. We, we were told that Abram was wi- rich in cattle and camels and gold and silver, but he's got at least 318 men that work for him. You're going, okay, so he is a man of wealth. He is. But you're thinking, an army that has just knocked over cities taken people out of those cities, hauled them off. You've got these tribesmen that are going to go and battle, individuals that aren't trained in warfare that are going to go do this, but they go ahead and pursue. He said, was it Abram, or did Abram just do this on his own? No, there was a faith in God that God was going to help him. You go, how do you know that? You're going to find it at the end of the story. We're not told that right here. But you're just kind of going, this isn't going to go well. And, and what we don't get is that in that story, in verse 14, it says that he takes people, his people and pursues them unto Dan. Now you go, how far is that? Well, if you just imagine a map of the dead, or the, excuse me, the nation of Israel, it's pretty easy to figure out. On one side, you've got the Mediterranean. On the other side, you've got the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, and there's a river that goes up to a point called Dan. What Abram does is that he chases these armies of individuals from the Dead Sea region all the way up to the far northern point of the nation of Israel and assaults the enemy there. And this is not a battle that just takes place there in Dan. It says it goes all the way to Damascus. This is a battle that rages over 300 miles. This is not just merely one battle. It's a pursuit over a large region of territory. And here they, as you find here, he divided himself, verse 15, against them. He and his servants by night smote them, pursued them unto Haba, which is the left hand of Damascus, outside Damascus, Syria presently. And uh, he brought back all the goods and brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. What it is, it's a thorough defeat of these four kings who have just conquered the whole region. And he gets everything back. And he gains it back. And you go, okay. So that's the event. Okay? This whole story, all those details are not the important details, though it does play a role in what the important detail is. And it starts in verse 17. 
As you look at this, okay, everything goes back. You're going, well, this is incredible. He defeats these four kings. That, that's just a magnificent thing. That's not the purpose of the story. Remember, as we go through the book of Genesis, and as we look at different stories in the book of Genesis, God could have chosen all sorts of stories from the life of Abram. We got a hundred years worth of life from age 75 to 175 that God could have chosen stories from, and God only picks a few of them. In this case, he chose this story. You go, well, it's because he won this great battle. Well, it's not necessarily for that. It's for what he does after the battle. And what individuals say about him after the battle. See, when they come back, they come back to this valley. It's known as the Valley, verse 17, the Valley of Sheva, which would have been outside a place called Shalem or Salem. In the process of coming to this place that's just outside the city of Salem, there's an individual, as we read in verse 17, that there, or verse 18, this individual called Melchizedek, king of Salem, comes out. He brought forth bread and wine, and he was the high priest of the Most High God. Now for us, okay, another name. But Melchizedek is a unique individual. His name itself means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. Melech, king, Zedek, righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem. For us, that doesn't seem to be very important. But Salem is another name for Jerusalem. He's the king of Jerusalem. He is, and this is an interesting thing, he's a king, his name is a kingly name, he's a king of a city, and he is also a priest of the Most High God. And if you're wondering who the Most High God is, uh, it's made clear very much later in verse 22, where Abram says, I lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Melchizedek is an individual who's a believer in the one true God. Okay? You think, well, Abram's the only one. You know, he's the only one that believed God and Lot kind of does, and there's nobody else in the world that believes God. No, there are other people who believe in the one true God during this time frame. We're just focused in on Abram. Uh, some people think, and I will say this, some people think that Job was a contemporary of Abram. And he believed in the one true God. So, I mean, you have individuals that believe in the one true God. That they believe that there's only one God in comparison to the rest of the world that believes there's many gods. But you have this Melchizedek who is a priest and a king. Not a normal combination. Now, what we know of Melchizedek is not so much from this passage because we would probably ignore Melchizedek but as you go through the scripture, you find his name hinted at again and again. Psalm 110, God says, Thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. He's speaking to a descendant of David. He's speaking of Jesus. And then you get to the book of Hebrews, and you find this name Melchizedek over and over and over again. Because what is going to be proved by Hebrews is this, is that Jesus isn't a priest like the Levites. He's a priest like Melchizedek. 
In fact, the argument's going to be this. Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek. That means Levi is lesser than Melchizedek, that Melchizedek is a better individual than Levi. So Jesus is a priest after the Melchizedek type of priest. Now, there's some that say, was this Jesus? Because he's going to be described in Hebrews as a person who had no beginning and no end, no father, no mother. You say, was he an individual who didn't have a father and mother? Well, we're just not told in this passage that he has a father and mother. We aren't told when he started, when he ended. None of those things. But this isn't Jesus. Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. He's one who is going to point to Jesus. He is going to be a representative like Jesus. But he's not Jesus. This is an individual who is God's representative, both king and priest, in this region. And when he comes out, what he does is that he echoes for Abram what God has already said to Abram. Okay, look at what Melchizedek says to him. Verse 19. Melchizedek comes out and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Now think about what God had said to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12 when he made his initial promise to him and he said this, I will make of thee a great nation. Now think about this. Abram has just fought a bunch of nations and he is, even though he's one man, he doesn't have children yet, uh, he's a great nation. Uh, and this, I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And Melchizedek comes out, and what does he say? Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God. God is blessing you, and through you, you're being a blessing. It's confirmation that Abram is right where he needs to be at. God is taking care of him just as he promised, and he's taking care of him just like he had said we don't know how many years previous to this, but several years previous to this that God said, You'll be a blessing, and I will bless you. And Melchizedek comes out, and he says, You're blessed of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, the one who created heaven and earth. He is blessing you, and you're being a blessing. And then Melchizedek doesn't even just say this, that God's doing this. What he does is he turns around, and he blesses God. He leads in a worship of God because he says in verse number uh, 20, Blessed be the Most High God which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. He comes out and says, God's done great things for you, but let's, let's worship this God who has delivered the enemies into your hand. He's a great God. And this word blessed is not the idea that humans can give anything to God that's worth anything. But we would oftentimes see in the Scriptures that the word blessed also has the idea of praise. Praise be to this God. And so here you have this man who is leading in the worship of God. And you say, what does Abram do? Abram, in response to this, as part of his worship of God, this man who is a priest uh, to the Most High God, Abram gives him a tenth. It says here uh, in our text, he gave him tithes of all. He gives him a tenth of everything that was captured as part of his worship to God, reflecting really what God had done for him. 
Now, I could take a side note on this and realize this. This is long before Moses ever commanded people to give a tenth of what they, were so, what they owned to the worship and service of God. You kind of go, so this idea of a tithe, a tenth of uh, being given back to God uh, is not a new concept, uh, but a very old concept. And it's something that was before the law ever existed, that we ought to in our worship reflect back God, the goods that we've been given. I mean, think about the statement that Melchizedek makes, that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Does God need our stuff? It's all his. Okay? It all belongs to him. It's not that he needs anything. It is his anyhow. What this tenth is, is just Abram's way of acknowledging, Lord, everything belongs to you. I'm giving this to you as a representation that I'm acknowledging the fact that you own heaven and earth, that you are the God that owns everything. And so you have Abram right in the, I mean, it's, it's almost, a, you read the story, great battle, whatever, and then Melchizedek comes out and you have this. But what, what happens in the midst of this? A, God, obviously for Abram goes, I'm confirming what I've already confirmed to you before. But on the other side, what Abraham has or Abraham's already been doing when he's been calling upon the name of the Lord, when you have that story, stories before where he sets up an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord, what it says there is he's worshiping God in the midst of a generation of people. Well, that's what he does here. And he does it before he gives back all the stuff to all these different kings that were defeated. They had to sit and observe all of this. Abram worshiping the one true God and lifting him up. Now you get the rest of the story. Because you have this King Melchizedek who comes out, blesses Abraham. There's a worship service of God that Abram has an opportunity to proclaim that God is the one true God. And the midst of all these kings and nations and people that are there, captured or released, and then along comes the king of Sodom, and in verse number 21, the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. What he just simply says is this, the king of Sodom, who's just ignored everything that's gone on here, the worship of God, and he just simply comes to Abram and goes, Ah, oh, hey, could I have my people back? Which... In that culture, he really didn't have a right to ask for because Abram was the one who controlled all that. He was the one who got the spoils. How did you pay armies back then? It wasn't that they had uh, a regular salary that was paid to them. It came to the things that they captured and that they took. And so armies back then would get their income pay from the spoil that they had taken. And to the victor goes the spoils. King Sodom comes along and goes, uh, hey, uh, can I have my people back? Oh, you can keep the stuff that you've got. But I want the people back. And Abram realizes what's going on here. Here you have a man who is still not understanding the one true God. No concept of this. Looking at a very selfish, earthly level. 
And he turns to him in verse 23, or verse 22, and he says to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. You've seen this. I've just declared God is the one who is in charge. God owns everything. God is the one who gave me the victory, not who I am. That's why I gave him the praise. That's why I gave him the worship. I've just done that. And for you to understand that truth, here's what I'm going to do. I am not going to, and as it says there, I will not take a thread even to a shoe latchet. I mean, think about this. Are the laces of your shoes really, really valuable? They are when they break, okay? Uh, then it becomes, you know, a critical situation. You're having to walk around with this. But, but shoelaces are not valuable. And he says, listen, I'm not even going to take a shoelace of the spoils. I don't need it. And I'm going to give it all back to you. Now, however, I'm not going to speak for the other individuals that I was with. These other tribesmen that are there. He goes, I'll let them take what they need. They can pay their people and they can pay the soldiers that they had and they can do that. I'll let them do that. But as for me, I'm not going to take anything because I know who my God is and that he is going to take care of me. And he gives it back to this, and you go, what was he doing? He was giving glory to God. In the midst of this historical event, he takes time to worship and praise God. Everybody sees it. He has a direct confrontation with the person who still doesn't understand uh, who God is. And he says, listen, I don't need your help in giving me the things that I need because I have the one true God, and he will take care of me. Now, when we come to this next week, our story stops right there because of the chapter break. But I want you to read what's next. Okay? Just read right through chapter 14 where he says, okay, I'm going to give everything up. You can have it back. Verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. You know what God says there? I'm the one who's going to protect you. I just did. And I'm going to take care of you because I'm your great reward. You don't need anybody else. I mean, there's a confirmation in this story just after all of this has taken place where Abram is, you know, shoving all this stuff that could be his out the door to other people, letting them have it back and whatever. And you're going, Abram, you could be really wealthy. You could have your needs supplied for a long, long, long time. And Abraham pushes it out the door and says, no, I don't need it because I have a God that's a great God and I've given him praise and worship. And God comes back and confirms to him, you're right, I'm your shield and I'm your exceeding great reward. Now that's going to lead to another controversy and we'll see next week, but God confirms that. So let me ask you this. You know, sometimes you've imagined perhaps that you would be part of a big event or something that went on. 
In those big events, would people know that you were a follower of the one true God? Okay, it doesn't happen by accident. Hey, it's not the big events happen and all of a sudden you go, you know what, I'm going to praise God. No, what Abram had been doing all of his life to this point, except for his one failure that we had recorded, is that he's been living his life, living as if God exists, proclaiming and worshiping Him wherever he went, and then the big event comes along, and it's just natural for him. It's just natural for him to point to who God is, for people to see what God is like. And it's not any different than what we have proclaimed in the New Testament. It doesn't matter what we accomplish or what events we do, whether they be big or small. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether therefore we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, do all to the what? You say, what's the glory of God? It's this opportunity to magnify God. 1 Corinthians 10 was a section where, you know, should I do this or this? And Paul's saying, make sure your testimony is absolutely clear that whether you eat certain foods and meats or these type of things, that people clearly see God. So even in the mundane events, the everyday events, some of us it's one or two times a day, sometimes it's four or five times a day, whether therefore we eat or drink, I mean, why do we pray for meals? It's an acknowledgement, just like Abraham did, where he says, all things belong to God. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this meal. You possess everything. And simple things like that, you give God glory. And you live your life like that, where you're going through, and you're giving God the glory and pointing people to Him and saying, my God's a great God, and He is one who takes care of me, and He will do this. He's done it in this situation, this situation. When the big event happens, this is a big event, historical uh, nature here, uh, recorded in history. Abram is there not magnifying self, not looking to self and getting possessions. He's simply looking at this and going, this is an opportunity to reflect upon my God. The great God I have who has done so much for me. But it started that he was already doing this, proclaiming the name of the Lord through these different places that he's at and doing this so that when this did happen on a grand scale, it came, well, naturally to him to reflect praise and glory to his God. Could we be individuals that go through our life on an individual basis, daily basis, we reflect glory to God so that if there is an event where God puts us in the spotlight, we would still reflect praise and glory to him in the midst of worldwide human events. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of Abram. In a world that at that time seemed like it was collapsing. In the midst of all of that, that Abram still reflected glory to you. Lord, may it be that we are individuals that are so assured of your care and your watchfulness and who you are that we would 
just declare that we have nothing else except for God and that He is all that we need. That we would reflect that to the world around us. That, that yes, okay, the dollar may collapse, but I still have everything that I need. And that the world may go to war and we still have all that we need. And there may be famine and disease that rages through the land, but we still have everything we need in God. We have the most important thing paid for uh, by you, and that's for our sins. You think about this, when Jesus died on the cross, our greatest need was taken care of. That was to have fellowship with you. And we can rejoice that we have everything that we need, and that if we die in this life, because of who you are and what you've given in your Son, we've got the life to come. We ought to be individuals that on daily basis and then in the big events reflect as a testimony to how great you are and to give you glory for all the things you've given to us. And that our dependence is not on the things of this world, but our dependence is upon you. So may we reflect and be like Abram in his testimony in a passage like this. And may the world see our God and be able to, well, in some cases come to a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ because of our testimony of reflecting praise to You. And this we ask in the name of the Son. Amen.